I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. America had many founders. Not all had the same level of dedication to democracy as Thomas Jefferson. Of the many quotes attributed to our many founders, this one is perhaps the most prescient and the most fitting for where we find ourselves in the third decade of the 21st century. Quote, an educated citizenry is a vital requisite for our survival as a free people, end of quote. And that is from Thomas Jefferson. Before becoming independent of the British Empire, education was reserved for the wealthy classes. I mean, why educate someone when they'd never have any opportunities to escape the class into which they were born? But at the base of who we are as Americans is education, opportunity for all. There were very good reasons why Owners of enslaved people would make sure they never got education because a little knowledge is a dangerous thing in their eyes. And so it is today with Donald Trump declaring, I love poorly educated people. He really said that. Just proves Jefferson to be correct. In feudalism, an educated populace was a direct threat. It used to be that not everyone went to high school. Now it's expected that everyone must graduate high school or be stuck in a menial job forever. And of course, college is pretty much expected now if young people want to get ahead at all. And we've gotten to the point where the pressure to get a top-notch education can go perhaps too far and may actually prove harmful to both the individuals and the system itself. Fierce competition is often counterproductive. Our guest today, Povin Dingra, argues that families are increasingly leaving public elementary and middle schools, not because schools are underperforming, but because of the opposite. The pressures are too intense and are breaking down and burning out from anxiety. As a parent myself, I've often, I've seen the effects of relentless competition when a little more cooperation might not have been a bad thing. Cooperation, I believe, would often yield better learning as well as better citizens. Then again, one size does not fit all. In his new book, Hypereducation, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough, our guest, author Povin Dingra, takes a needed step back and sees what he calls an educational arms race, which is not a good thing. Povin Dingra is professor of American Studies at Amherst College, the award-winning author of many books, including Life Beyond the Lobby, Indian American Motel Owners, and the American Dream. His work has been featured in the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, New York Times, Salon, the PBS NewsHour, and the documentary on Netflix, Spelling the Dream. And I just wanted to read one particular uh, review of the book, a fascinating and timely look at the risks and rewards of cranking up the academic pressure on children. Pavan Dingra does not just analyze the status quo. He shows parents, educators, and society as a whole how to change so that we can find the sweet spot between pushing the next generation too hard and not pushing them enough. Well, thanks so much for being with us, uh, Professor Dingra. What is 
your purpose in writing the book? Who is the target audience? Well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on your show. Uh, the target audience are for uh, parents, first and foremost, who find themselves in schools and wondering, you know, is my child getting the kind of education I want? Is my child getting too stressed? Is my child not getting pushed enough? And these are different kinds of questions parents can have that motivate them to wonder how their child should be educated, right? And then also consider if they should do more, should they do less, should they push back? These are a lot of the questions that communities are asking uh, and parents are asking and teachers are having to respond to and the kids are kind of at the heart of, right, the kids' experiences. So it's primarily for parents um, with kids but uh, in school, but also it speaks to teachers and principals, uh, and it also has to do, and you kind of alluded to this, um, what is the future of our public education system, right? Uh, these activities that parents are doing are looking to find ways to supplement their kids' education, but in the process, are they undermining the public schools, even if the parents don't mean to? You're not just talking about any kind of schools, but even some of our better schools, our best schools, are they not doing enough for our kids? And if so, according to parents, then as our public school system, even when it's doing quite well, under threat. So if you care about the public school system and changes in it from no child left behind up yeah. to the current moment, then this is uh, this speaks to that as well. Yeah, it's been very, very difficult to figure out non-educators, or even educators, I suppose, but I'm not a teacher myself, what the best policies might be. Uh, and I do wonder about things like tutoring. There's a lot of uh, money to be made and is being made with, with tutoring for kids. And mm -hmm. I, I, I wonder about how the, some of the effects of that, if it really helps, and, and what the uh, societal effect of, of perhaps too much tutoring might be. So tutoring is a, one of the fastest-growing industries in the country. So certain places in, um, like Kumon and Athanasium, which are you know in Manchester and Nashua all over the country, are some of the fastest-growing companies in the, in the country. Not just, not just the fastest-growing education-related companies, but any kind of company. And they were growing before COVID, and they're going to grow now even during this time because they have a lot of online opportunities, and parents are wondering, is my child getting enough education now? Now that we're all at home and learning is so disrupted, should I be supplementing my child and we seeing um, trends of this? If these companies are prone to grow even more than they already were. And tutoring is not just growing uh, in this current moment in the past two years. No Child Left Behind, that I mentioned earlier, gave billions of dollars to tutoring, some of which went to these private um, for-profit companies, in order to serve those who were in schools that were deemed to be underperforming, right? right? Mm -hmm. But then as these companies get a lot of funds, of course they grow and they expand, and who takes advantage of them are those who can afford them, right? Yes. So, they're getting, so higher income families have doubled down on these spaces, and we're seeing this not just uh, historically, but right now, Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos mm. have put out a plan for micro-grants and for other kinds of refunding to partly go to tutoring. And you're going to see the same dynamic happen that while there's targeted for lower income families, these companies will, you know, grow and they will be able to offer more opportunity, more expanded learning. And then higher income families will be the most likely to benefit the most. And I can say that um, referring not just to hypotheticals, but to actual studies that have shown that 
tutoring that um, children received under No Child Left Behind does not have did not have that meaningful of an effect in their educational growth and our educational outcomes. Mm. But when I spoke to parents, and I, the parents I look at, I spoke to and spent a lot of time with, are middle-class families, not low-income families. These families can afford to put their kids into these activities. And they spoke on and on about the benefits their kids received from this kind of um, opportunities. And, I mean, just clarify, these aren't like extreme families who are super intense on education. They're, you know, families who are saying, my kid's in a good school, my kid's doing fine. But maybe I should be just adding a bit more to their learning just so I make sure that they you know, can get all the opportunities that they can. They're well-meaning parents. This is, to me, yes. is the biggest conundrum, right? They're well-meaning parents. They're, they're grounded parents. But their actions are unintentionally creating a greater educational divide in our country. They're furthering the education arms race that we're seeing take place at a younger and younger age, even though they themselves, right, are, you know, well-meaning, they're thoughtful, they're caring, all the things we, we try to be as parents. And I can imagine that uh, No Child Left Behind may have had good intentions. I, I, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it, it was, it doesn't exist anymore, does it? I mean, and now there's, there's talk about the Common Core, and there's a lot of pushback right. on that. Tell us more about No Child Left Behind, and, and hopefully it's been left behind. <laughs> <laughs> well, the premise behind it, right, even the title itself, is that, you know, there, is, there had not been a great amount of assessment, uh, sorry, of um, capturing our kind of racial and economic divide and educational outcomes. And so one thing that No Time Left Behind, which is which we, be, we forget now, but it was co-sponsored by Ted Kennedy. Yes, I know. Um, was, was trying to, you know, at its, at its best moments, was trying to see, well, where are we in our education system? And, and what's, let's make sure no child is left behind. But how it went about it in this kind of neoliberal moment is that it mm-hmm. increased opportunities for privatization of education, for charter schools, for more choice education. And this has you know, really mushroomed the charter school movement. Now, what I'm looking at are these opportunities for education outside of schools that aren't charter schools. People are not taking their kids out of the public school to put them in these centers. Like, these are just like after-school centers that you would go to, like you would go to soccer practice. Uh-huh. But it still pertains to the charter school movement in the sense that these are ways that parents are seeking private opportunities for their kids to get advanced in education, just like you would you know, consider, well, my public school is not doing enough. Let me find some private or some, some kind of alternative. These parents are in public schools. They're not leaving public schools, but they're still intentionally or unintentionally critiquing them and saying this is somehow failing our kids. And I spoke to lots of parents who said, my kid's in a good school. I moved to this town because of the school, and I still want more education. It's not, it's not, doing, it's not serving my kid as well as it should be. Huh, interesting. Yeah, the whole charter school thing, it, it's – Something about it has just bothered me all along. Like, I, I get the sense that it's kind of taking the uh, the focus away from education for all, and and putting it, you know, kind of uh, diverting uh, some of the the funding, for example. And if Betsy DeVos is in favor of it, it can't be any good. Am I? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, you know, yeah, it's true. The charter school movement is is heavily critiqued for having public funds, but not necessarily serving all children. Right, right. So that's one of the, and again, and the same thing we're seeing with these, you know, public companies, the public funds, which is good. It's in the sense that 
you know, if your child is not getting the education that you think the child deserves and you can't afford anything else, then, yeah, there should be opportunities to get something uh, while you wait for your school to turn around, right? Um, but these companies are actively marketing themselves to higher-income families. So as an example, I spoke to uh, the founder of a, of a company, and the person said, we grow in areas that already have very well-respected and well-resourced schools. We're not looking to put ourselves into districts that have poorly ranked or poorly resourced schools. The reason being, families who move to these higher-income suburbs, typically or areas, where you have well-ranked schools, are more likely to want to invest more money into education so their company will grow. Uh, they're kind of banking, if you will, uh-huh. on growing educational investment and inequality, right? I talked to another, someone else who ran, a, who ran a, a franchise company, like a local franchise, and he says, this, like, I want to stress, very nice guy, like, you know, really well-meaning, small business owner, someone you want to see succeed. And he said, I have limited marketing dollars. So I'm not going to market my my um, company, right. my local franchise in the suburb, to all kinds of families. It's just too expensive, right? So I, I'm going to highlight. Uh, I'm going to pick out families that make over one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars a year, and I'm going to, you know, you can kind of do this through marketing kind of maneuvers and target my, you know, mailings, let's say, sure. to them, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't have the budget to do otherwise. And, and but then what's the result? Right? It's obvious. Yeah, it certainly is, unfortunately, quite obvious, all too obvious. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and education is essential to democracy, in my opinion, and Thomas Jefferson's opinion as well. And we're speaking with Arthur Povendingra. Uh, his new book is Hyper Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. And right now, at this moment, I have no idea how long it's going to go on, the unique COVID-19 era. That's, how is that? A, so many different aspects of it with the kids mm-hmm. stuck at home, uh, learning online, it, it, at not being able to socialize with other kids. Oh, my gosh. That's just awful. How, how does that affect educational inequality? And there's a lot of questions mm-hmm. about how it's affecting education. But how does that affect specifically educational inequality, this COVID-19 right. era? You know, I have two uh, two kids who are, as you say, at home during, doing some version of online learning. And, you know, we're uh, lucky that we have internet, internet access. We have uh, spaces where they can work, right? Um, my wife and I are both at home. We're not on the front lines in some ways. They're not home alone. Right. Uh, so there is a growing education inequality between those who have such privileges and those who don't. And... Imagine also not just these kind of material privileges, but if your child has uh, a learning challenge already or mm. English is not the first language. And there's so many other kind of layers you could add on to this. But here's the other crux of this. Let's, Im- let's, ha- let's imagine that our schools uh, were able to reach out to all kids equally, even if they didn't have Internet access. Or, you know, you're seeing all these wonderful examples of teachers driving, dropping off homework or whatever else it might be. You can't have a, you know, quiet learning environment, let's say we're able to give you something to uh, attend to that. We're able to fix all these discrepancies. Even then, you would find increased educational inequality as some families are able to have their kids get supplemental learning outside of school in addition to school 
so that they stay ahead of the game, right? And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing this pre-COVID, and we're going to see even more now post-COVID or during COVID and even post-COVID because even now parents are saying kids only in school a couple hours a day or they get assignments that uh, are going to last them the whole week, but they're done early. And you're seeing a, you know, a lot of best, education books are becoming bestsellers as parents want to supplement their kids. And what their parents are doing it through buying books off Amazon or they're doing it online or whatever else, the, the premise is the same. My local school, even if I like it, I cannot trust it to be doing enough to educate my kid. And once that becomes the mindset, right, parents then feel compelled to look for ways to supplement. And this is going to increase educational inequality between those who can afford the best kinds of supplements and those who can't. And this is happening in pre-COVID. These are some of the fastest growing companies in the country before this. And a lot of these companies are, they offer online options. The online options have just increased recently. So you can be at home. You don't have to go to the centers physically like you used to right. and get the benefits. And I'm not trying to, you know, demonize companies. Right? They're, they're part of the marketplace of opportunities, right. so what have you. Uh, but how they're getting used on ways that are going to increase um, the, the education arms race and education learning gap between those who do and those who don't. And I talk to school principals and, and teachers, and they have lots of concerns around this as well that I'm, you know, I'm happy to elaborate on. But the challenges are there, and they're going to increase in this COVID moment. Boy, and, and you know, exacerbating that inequality, that's, that's really scary. And, I, you know, as a recovering politician myself, uh, I have <laughs> seen uh, the, the Republicans for years, decades, have been doing all they can to cut funding for public education. As, as, as Donald Trump said, you know, that, uh, what does he say? I love uh, ignorant, uh, or I love poorly educated people. And mm-hmm. we can see what happens with that. And, and it's so right. important to democracy. A democracy is, you know, about everybody being able to, to participate in it. And uh, talking about uh, uh, online learning, there's an article in today's New York Times uh, about online proctoring so that the, the, right. <laughs> they can spy on you. They want you to, to take your, your laptop and, you know, go around the room and show yeah. everything that's in there. Uh, that, that's a little troublesome. Let's talk about that. That's going to be, I mean, the more we get used to these kinds of learning opportunities or, you know, options, then the more we're kind of allowing these, these online gadgets to kind of become part of our, you know, not just something we use for leisure or for our, when we choose to, but we come to expect this has to be, well, this is just how learning happens. This is how, this is our, you know, our one school, our one room classroom, one room, room school, right, in the historic times, right? This is now our one room classroom where you, the computer becomes your room, computer becomes the classroom. And we have to then, we just pick this as the new normal. And what kind of privacy are we giving yeah, up? Really. Right? We don't know that. I mean, there's, uh, you know, Zoom, uh, is a major corporation we're all learning about now. We have it. It's not using it already. And yes. you know, what is it? What kind of data does it collect? These are all questions that we're not even considering because we're right in the we're in the middle of an airplane that's you know heading downward. We don't start questioning. We don't start reading the fine print of their user's manual 
as they're trying to rebuild the airplane. I just, we don't have time for that right now. And so, but that fine print is there for a reason, right? And it's still being there. And, you know, that's what a lot of, you know, middle-class parents are kind of in the middle of, right? How do I supplement my child right now? How do I just make sure the kid's getting what they deserve? And a lot of parents I spoke to talk about it in that way. It's not about trying to beat someone else per se. Right. It's just about creating opportunities. And so many parents I spoke to, getting back to your original point about the importance of education, would say, I want my child to be, I don't want them to be a mathematician or engineer or anything. I just want them to be confident in life. I don't want them to have opportunities in life. Yes. So I want to supplement their education uh, in this kind of, you know, once a week kind of way that instead of just going to soccer practice only, they have this plus soccer practice. And that's going to give them this better opportunities down the line and whatever op- options they get. And that's the conundrum, right? Like yeah, sure. We have families who are well-meaning, who are just thinking what's best for their kids, and they're doing things that we can all can appreciate in many ways. And the implications or repercussions are dramatic, both for their kids, for other kids in their schools, and for people across different zip codes, and for those inside the classroom, you name it. Oh, yeah, the zip code differences in so many different ways, healthcare, education, uh, right. So, so many different things. And, you know, still on the on the COVID-19 thing, you know, the kids being stuck at home. What other not strict, strictly academic skills may be taught at this time? What lessons can be learned from teaching lessons at home? What might some of the, you know, advantages be? For academic lessons or non-academic? Non-academic. Lessons? Oh, that is where a lot of opportunity and, and, and focus should be, right? I mean... Right now, what we're learning is that we are better off as a as a country if we put our if we focus on compassion and consideration for others first. Right? I, why do I why do I wear a mask? Why are we told to wear a mask? Why protect others, not yourself? If we could think about education as prioritizing that kind of learning, right? And let's think about it as a type of learning as opposed to just a type of value, as a kind of learning, then how much different would we be right now, right? And, you know, and I, and I love uh, schools and teachers, and I've been, and even before I had this project, but now that I've done that, I have even more respect than I already did, right? And one thing they're always dealing with is the social and emotional well-being of our students, right? That's something they talk about a lot. Talk, teachers care so much about the students they only see for like a certain number of hours a day yeah. for one year. They're so motivated for their well-being, that's beyond the you know the assessment that they have to do and the state testing and everything sure, else. Sure. And you talk to them, and they're the ones who are saying, "We want to make sure our kids, our students, you know, grow up to be thinking about others, not just focused on grades." And this is the kind of opportunity at home now we have to really dwell on that, right? Focusing on their kids' opportunity to show compassion for creativity, right? For for imaginative play, for all these things that during the normal school year, when, when we're in session and all the over-scheduling that parents are doing nowadays, um, which is, you know, part and parcel of middle-class parenting today, that we lose sight of, right? Parents, parents are spending more money on their kids today than in any other time in history. And what that means is not just things you buy for them to play with, but having them in baseball, having them in art, having them in ballet, having them in a, in a math center or, or whatever else it might be. This is this has become the new normal in parenting, and what I want to think about in particular is what does that mean for education, 
when this is going on? What does it mean for what childhood has become? Childhood, if this yeah. is the new normal. Uh, I know. I, uh, quite frankly, I found the intensity of competition. One of my daughter's schools, it was just compete, compete, compete. And there was... Right. I didn't. I didn't see any sense of, of 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 cooperation, and I think it detracted from social skills, which are needed to develop at the high school age. There was no time for fun, and it seems to I me. I talk to parents. Go ahead. Who have their kids in these um, in academic competitions, like spelling bees and math competitions, and they and and they spoke for a long time about why that was valuable. But even they would say, "Am I just raising a more competitive child?" Right. Is that all? Is that really what I'm doing? Even though I have reasons why I'm doing this, I do something I believe in. Right. The conundrum. This is what I, you know, I really dwell on: is all these the conundrum behind it. Am I just creating a kid who is just trying to win? Right. Or you know, am I? Can I raise a child whose focus is compassion? Right. Even though I want to provide them these academic opportunities, uh, and that was a, like the like the explicit concern parents who even those who were involved had. It was that pronounced. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I, 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 I mean, I certainly agree that uh, you know, just being a winner. I mean, D- Donald Trump talks about win, win, win. We're just winning, <laughs> you know. And compassion, huh? <laughs> right. Of course, you know, we're, we're sick of winning. This is winning. I don't know what losing looks like, but um, uh, it, yeah, yeah, it's, that's it's, right. It's that, that's what it is. That's it's, right. it's, that's what a lot of it has become. And these parents are responding to. Not just like the sense of uh, an, an you know an ingrained notion of, of competition, although you know, people many parents do believe in that matters, but they look around and they say, you know, getting into college today is more challenging than it's ever been, and uh, yeah. we're not just we're not going to get in uh, to not even thinking about the Ivy League or something extreme like that, but just you know selective places. If we just follow along the expected route, we have to somehow differentiate our right. kids. And all parents are wondering about this, right? Why do you differentiate? Because your child, you know, plays uh, is in a rock band that writes great songs, or your child's a great artist, or your child's brilliant at math, or whatever it is. Uh, you want to find some way of distinguishing yourself so that you can get into college. That's become a new normal. Yeah. And parents are saying, well, you know, we have to do well on the standardized tests. We have to make ourselves, our kids stand out. And so they're looking for, and they're saying, we're not going to wait until junior or, or sophomore, or even ninth grade to start doing this. We're going to start this in third grade now. And that's part of this mentality to help create kids who can distinguish themselves come high school and then come college. Uh, and I talked to college admissions officers mm. about this, and they were like, this is not how parents should do things, right? Parents should not be thinking strategically in this way. Uh, especially at such a young age. But again, but, but at the same time, they would say, you know, well, yeah, we do look at SAT scores. We do look at grades. We look at all these things, but we don't just look at that. So, you know, parents are in a tough position. Right? They want their kids to, you know, have a good childhood, yeah. to have playtime, to relax, all the things that we enjoyed growing up in a different generation. But they also are saying, well, if these grades do matter, if these scores do matter, how do I not do something extra for my kid so they're prepared for this future? And this is the kind of back and forth in parents' minds that you deal with. And so the parents I spoke to, uh, you know, would talk about why, even though they had these reservations, they still decided to put some extra education in their kids' lives, like putting extra, you know, spinach on their plate <laughs> during right. dinner time. 
And they would say things like, we want our kids to be more competitive. We want them to do well because, you know, we've got to where we are in our middle-class lives through education, through working hard, and we have to expect our kids to do the same. One thing that really fascinated me when I was talking with parents about why they did this, and if you ask parents why they do it, they say, you know, they make my kids more competitive for college admissions or I don't my school's okay, but I want them to be better. But if you ask them what they worry would happen if they stopped doing this or what they think about parents who don't do this, they started articulating more reasons that had to do with morality, right? Raising the right kind of kid. Not just raising an educated kid or a qualified kid, but raising, raising a good kid. So here's an example. One mother said, and I asked her, well, you know, what do you think about this in different ways? She said, my grandmother survived the Holocaust. My parents put me through college because they worked hard. I have my children in an after-school math class, so they learn the values of hard work and of putting your best foot forward to become the kind of person you want to become. So she drew a line between surviving the Holocaust and her child in an after-school math center. Right? In her mind, they both kind of fit the same way of being, caring, uh, hardworking, uh, perseverance, um, commitment to the long term, right? Not about, and she wasn't talking about SAP tests right. or other kind of things like that, right? So these the parents put a lot of deep meaning into these things that was very surprising, but it tells us, right, there's more going on here than just good grades, right, and just good schools, right? Um, and that's going to be something that, that's one of the reasons why these are. Um, growing, I think, in meaning, in stature. That's very interesting, the morality. And I wouldn't necessarily be thinking of that, but you're right. And, you know, hyper-competition, morality, what use is that? You know, you toss it by the wayside. But it it is extremely important to be, you know, a a functioning member of society. And and if we do care about democracy and a society, uh, we can't leave... Pardon me. Any children behind? <laughs> I really can't. Yeah. And what's, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, what was very surprising is very surprising is that the, the parents on the one hand talk about this uh, as again not just raising more qualified kids, but also raising good kids, right? There's kind good of kids, moral yes. component to it. But then teachers I spoke to and school principals had almost the exact opposite assessment, really? and they would say uh, um, teachers and principals would say. You know, kids should not be doing this. Kids who are doing this, the parents are just too intense. And one principal, an elementary school principal of a well-ranked school, she, you know, uh, who cares about education, obviously more than almost anybody, and the school principal sure, of sure. all people yeah. would say, kids should not be doing this more education outside of, the, outside of school. They should not be doing it. The parents who do this are, you know, for lack of a better word, they're uncaring and they're ungrounded. Right, They're, the parents are damaging the kids. That was a sentiment from the schools. Teachers would say, uh, "I see stress and anxiety at younger and younger ages. I see kids who, you know, are are just overscheduled. A kindergartner who has all day kindergarten and then does you know soccer and then you know maybe has, does violin or whatever else. Right? These kids are stressed." These kids are overscheduled, and parents are doing damage to their kids. So on the one hand, you have teachers and principals who are worried that the parents who do this actually lack some kind of moral guidance, 
And instead of just trying to create more competitive kids with a deeper resume, on the other hand, you have parents who think, if I don't do this, what kind of kid am I raising? Right? This is the conundrum that's at the heart of why this trend is both growing and very controversial. And one last thing I want to, if I quickly sure, sure. can, quickly just add about why this matters. Let's just say you don't have kids in the public schools anymore, or you don't have any kids at all, uh, and or you're, you know, if you do have kids in the public school, but they're not doing this, you don't want anybody who's doing this. Why do you have to care? Why should you care? Right? And that's why I was like, well, you know, does it really matter beyond those who are involved? And I realized as I talked to more people that this is actually really significant. As parents put their kids into these activities after school more and more, what they're inadvertently and sometimes explicitly saying is that I don't trust my school to educate my kid. And therefore, they're looking to the private marketplace to access to um, add to their education is another example of how the private sphere is being used to undermine the public education, the public system, right? And it's not like charter schools where it's actually taking money outside of a school to do it in this way, but it's the same vein of saying our schools cannot be trusted and they should be somehow changed or they're inefficient or they're inadequate, and the private sphere is the place to turn to if you really want your kids to be educated. And what's very surprising, well, I'm sorry to cut you off, but one thing I want to stick at it, if I may, and it's sure. all, I promise I'll, I'll, what, what I want to stress is this is even our best schools. The critique the parents were making, they were in some of the best schools in the state, of their states, mm-hmm. and they still felt they were inadequate. So that's what I wanted to um, just add on. Well, I'll tell you one thing that I have, I have heard uh, these days <laughs> from parents who have kids at home. <laughs> There's a lot of sentiment saying, we don't pay teachers enough. <laughs> we got to pay them. You're right, exactly. This is kind of making me realize, oh my gosh, I can't believe they do all this all day. Plus, you know, <laughs> this, you know, getting the kids from you know, through the hallway to the next oh, class okay. and really? getting them this and now, you know, this is the managing. Oh my gosh. It is amazing. Well, finally, they're, they're getting some recognition. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. And at the base of democracy is education for all. We're speaking with the uh, author Pavan Dingra, uh, whose new book is Hyper Education. Why good schools, good grades, and good behavior are not enough. And we've all heard the expression, tiger mom. Are we all mm-hmm. becoming tiger parents? And what, what might be wrong with that? And how, how do you know if you've crossed the line? <laughs> yeah, so that's a great question. So tiger parenting and tiger moms are is a kind of a caricature of, yeah. uh, typically we think about it as like these Asian parents who have their kids and, uh, you know, extra uh, education and violin and piano and everything else. And it became a, it's a big kind of concern that the tiger parents are too authoritarian and kids are unhappy and stressed out. In fact, uh, you talk to school districts, they actually do worry about kind of this kind of parenting model being very pronounced. Uh, and we're seeing more and more parents, again, worried about their kids' education, whether they should be or not, saying we have to do more and more and, and supplement our kids. And even our kid doesn't like this extra thing that they're doing. We, you know, eat your vegetables, you know, do your math class, whatever else have you. And tiger parenting, uh, even though it may not be real as a, you know, in terms of applying to a whole culture, you do see parents who are quite authoritarian at times. And the parents I spoke to don't fit that character. Like they, they are caring, they're thoughtful, they care about their kids' well-being. But even then, they may put their kids in activities that the kids don't want to be in. And now in this COVID moment. More and more families are saying, you know, should I be supplementing my kids' education? Should I buy an extra book for them to read? Should I make sure 
as simple as, you know what, you know, Johnny, uh, I want you to do an extra 30 minutes of reading, pick any, you know, whatever book you're reading, an extra 30 minutes of day, a day, right? Like anything we're doing now in this moment is in effect saying, we have to monitor this more closely than we were. We need to add to our kids' schedule. We need to add to their learning, whether it's as simple as reading 30 minutes more a day or it's something quite intense, like, you know, enroll in this online course and take it, you know, five days a week. Uh, whatever the output is, parents are worried that their kids are not getting enough. So are we becoming tiger parents? I don't think we're becoming tiger parents, but, you know, we are, in effect, saying maybe our schools uh, are, you know, in a situation right now where we have to do more than we thought we would. Uh, it is uh, challenging for sure. And you've written about uh, spelling bees, the Scripps National Spelling mm-hmm. Bee. Why is it that first-generation Asian-American kids are overrepresented in academic uh, competitions, such as the Scripps National Spelling Bee? My, my oldest daughter was in a spelling bee and did well, but uh, it, 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 tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so um, that's actually... Uh, how I got into this project was like uh-huh. this, this trend that I knew about. And when I talked with parents whose kids were in spelling bees or math competitions, uh, they were, we were surprised. They would say, you know, I don't even care about spelling. They're like, really? Because your child has spent a lot of time spelling. I was surprised you say that. And they say, oh, well, I just want to make sure my kid has more uh, kind of opportunities to be learning than the school provides. Again, they're in good schools and still they was not satisfactory. And so they would put their kids in their in these academic competitions. And the kids themselves liked them. They weren't like the sport dragged into them against their will. Uh, and then after a while, when you see parents motivated by this want of more learning, and then the parents kind of help the kids, like they're they're studying with them, they're quizzing them, right, right. they're oh, buying, sure. you know, oh, there's there's different word lists you can learn to that are you know uh, do well on an actual competition. Let's buy that word list. Let's study that word list, not just study the dictionary or random words. And as parents put more time into this, when the kids, you know, find it interesting, then you're going to see, you know, basically it, it mushrooms into something that's quite, you know, a lot of quite time consuming and quite um, dramatic in its, in its effects. Yeah, it's and kids start doing well. And of course, you know, once your kid does well on something, you kind of want them to do more of it. And kids themselves, oh, I want a trophy. I want to keep doing right, it. Right, right, right. And that becomes kind of self-fulfilling. Sure. And as as this happens, you start seeing more and more kids doing well in this, and that becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I know, you know, people like us do this, so we should keep doing this. And so it becomes ah, uh-huh. uh, very, becomes like a domino effect. In fact, there are spelling bees. So we all know about the Scripps National Spelling Bee. And last year there were like eight co-winners in, in dramatic fashion. Seven of them, seven of them were of, of Asian Indian origin. In fact, there are spelling bees just for and by uh, South Asians in this country, uh, South Asian Americans, people of Indian descent, or uh-huh. other, other South Asian countries. They put on their own spelling bees for their kids. It's, it is that like big of a deal in the community. Um, and so, if you have, if you are of this ethnicity, like myself. And you see these opportunities around you. Like, I'll just, I'll do this other spelling bee too. Or, you know, why not? Because it's people I know are doing this, or it's accessible to me. And so they have the kids have even more opportunities to practice and perform and get better at it. So it becomes something quite pronounced. So this this zeal for hyper education that 
you know, face it, we've seen in, in Indian American families. It's, as you say, it's kind of an ironic quest for and resistance to assimilation. Right. A lot of families, not just immigrants, but the U.S. born and raised families. This is what really surprised me. I heard it was one father, um, you know, uh, white, you know, grew up in, white male, grew up in this country, uh, you know, born and raised, parents born and raised. He said, I don't want my child to assimilate and become American. I'm like, what are you talking about? You, like, you, you are, you know, you're doing quite well in this country. And you're American. He's like, no, no. American culture to him meant just kind of going with what's fun, uh, having kids who didn't oh. believe and didn't learn the values of hard work and perseverance and sacrifice. And instead, the kids today... Uh, were being raised by parents who just wanted the kids to be happy and enjoy enjoy whatever they were doing, and yes, maybe overscheduled, but they're just doing they're just having fun with whatever they're doing, and they're not being challenged to really think beyond their immediate gratification. And that he thought was becoming more and more definitive of America, right? And he was worried. I don't want my child to assimilate and become nothing. I want my child to be a contributor, which is why he had his child in an after-school math class. And he would critique his neighbors, who, if you're standing outside his house, his house looks exactly like his neighbor's house. The cars look the same. Everything looks, you know, generally equivalent. But in his mind, there was a meaningful difference between him and his neighbors because they were okay with the status quo. They were okay with their kids uh, becoming just like anyone else and not being learning the values of hard work and sacrifice that he thought, and most parents I spoke to thought, were more apparent in an earlier generation. But nowadays, you know, with, you know, easy internet access and easy and Amazon deliveries and everything else, the world is at your fingertips, right? If you want a gadget, it can be at your door in two days, right? And we don't think about the consequences. We don't think about what it takes to create that, to labor that, the, the, um, the, the climate implications, none of that, right? So if you want your child to grow up and be someone who's thinking about what it takes to accomplish something and not expect things to be handed to him and not always be enjoying life, but realize that life takes effort and sacrifice. Yes. Then you have them in an after school once a week math class. That was the logic, right? It's very, it's very surprising. Um, but there's also something about it that when they speak about it, they're not, you know, they're not crazy. They're not talking about things that don't resonate in some way. Uh, and then again, they're not like uncaring. They're they're very thoughtful oh, about wanting sure. the kids to have fun and free time and other stuff. But they have a strong line that they feel needs to be learned. Um, that they you can learn organically, right? But if you're not learning organic because you're you know because you're middle class and feel like sure you have certain privileges coming to you, you have to go out of your way to instill it. And this is what they were trying to do. Boy, it is it is quite a difficult balance as a parent. I guess it always has been, really. You know, you want your kids to be happy and push themselves mm-hmm. too. And you know, you can right. push too much, you can push too little. It's it's not uh, not an easy thing, and it and it seems to be uh, you know with this hyper education uh, exacerbated now, making it uh, even worse. And I thought it was interesting you mentioned in this spelling bees that that. One of the things they did is uh, they got harder and harder words, but then they kind of figured oh, right. out, you know, having a bunch of co-winners is a better thing. Talk about that if you would a little bit, please. Yeah, I had um, 
uh, an op-ed in the New York Times last uh, almost a year ago about this exact idea, which is that you know after this last the last spelling bee, they were they couldn't filter down the the, the contestants to less than eight. Typically, there was just one winner, but you know this year, last yeah. year there were eight. This year, this year um, it's been canceled because of COVID, very sadly. Yeah, and. Um, and so all, afterward, after this happened, there was all this kind of conversation in the media and social media, like, oh, my God, what's wrong with the script spelling bee? Why can't they find one winner? It was ridiculous. Yeah. So, like, this actually could be the best thing that's ever happened, right? Like, and I, I think about it relative to the um, NBA basketball championship, which goes on at the exact same time as the script's national spelling bee. So yeah. that's why it kind of makes sense for me to think about these two hand in hand. And yeah. I don't want two NBA champions. I don't want... The uh, the Lakers and the you know whatever else other team Celtics uh, the Celtics thank you <laughs> to be to both get to both win in the same year okay I want just one because uh, that's more fun that's how it should be but yeah. but I'm talking about you know uh, seventh graders who are working tirelessly perfectly believe in and if they're accomplishing it so well why can't there be more than one winner where's the harm in that yes really aren't we teaching kids if that's the case, if we allow them to have more than one winner, what we're saying is you don't have to beat someone else to be the best at something. You can just perform at your highest level. And when you reach a certain stage, right, you've done it, right? You don't have to, you don't have to win over someone else to be good at something. <laughs> and yet that competitiveness Absolutely. is so taken for granted that even for kids, we think it's wrong for there to be more than one winner. Right? And I push back uh, on that. I think it's fine if that happens at times. But again, I don't mind if it's just one winner. I'm not, that's fine. Right? right? But I think that somehow it's wrong if there's more than one. Right. I think we're, we're losing out on that. Right? And, I, and my advice for families who, you know, uh, were doing academic competitions and now they're all canceled isn't just to stop studying. Right? If my, if my child was playing in the Little League World Series and – this is that gets canceled because of COVID. Right. Does that mean my child has to stop playing baseball in the backyard? Of course not. Let's still play catch. Right? Let's still, you know, hit the ball around. Because we should you should like doing it regardless of the opportunity to raise a trophy. Yes. Right? And I think that's what we're trying to um, that's one thing I really want kids to, to you know, to to my own kids to internalize. And one of the things that we're trying to I'm trying to get at right with this book is how that can still be the case. So, so many important points. And uh, one thing that, that some, a lot of parents have wondered for, for little kids, you know, they have a race and all the kids get a number one. And right. I, 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 you know, I don't know about that. I, I, you've probably no, seen that's the flip side of this, right? Which is itself. Yeah. One extreme or the other is wrong. <laughs> True. I know that. I mean, that's just, that's gone a little bit too far. You know, we, we're not right, all right, winners. Right. We're not all, you know, Einsteins, uh, you know, we're not all uh, great rock and rollers or, or whatever, but exactly. what about this emphasis on STEM education, science, technology, uh, what does that stand for? I guess I forgot the other E-M. Engineering math. and math. Engineering, yeah. yes, and math. What does that turn have to do with no child left behind and other efforts to standardize education? What, what about right. the faith in, in corporations, private interests, and distrust of government? And, and this, this enthusiasm, it's not just restricted to those on the politically right of center, is it? No, no. Um, STEM education is, is um, all over, right? It's ubiquitous in terms of the yes. growth of where people are putting not just corporate investment, but even just personal investment in educational outcomes. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a lot for to be gained from STEM education, but then the question is, 
is a STEM education alone right. a real education, right. right? If we don't have the humanities, if we don't have philosophy, if we don't have social sciences, then are you getting a full sense of what, not just how to create the next great, you know, app or the next, or the next great medical breakthrough, that's fine, which is great, but we need that right now more than ever. But what are the ethics around what you're doing? What are the social or environmental dimensions of what's going on right now? We're not going to appreciate that if we're just thinking about things in terms of STEM. And a lot of the families I spoke to, even like kids who, not just kids who did math, but even kids who did spelling bees, their families could very well have STEM education. Their, their jobs are in STEM jobs, it's just engineering, yeah. or computers, right? And so, they, you know, like a lot of parents, if you're adept to something, you tend to privilege that for your kids. And so that's, not, that's kind of a standard parenting you know, reflex. Uh, and so these kids would be getting more exposure to STEM education. Uh, and the parents themselves would say, I have to make sure that I balance that out with making sure they're getting you know, opportunities to write, yeah, to really. reflect, to think in, in humanistic ways, to be creative. Right? I spoke with an immigrant father who has a very traditional way of thinking about things. Like if you don't do, if we're not studying something that's going to make you money, then why are you studying it? Right? There's just like, you know, him it doesn't make any sense. I, so he said, I spoke with someone who, you know, graduated from NYU and he majored in English. And I asked the person, why did you major in English? Do you want to be an English teacher? Like, well, why did you want to major? Do you want to be a writer, professional writer? And, you know, he said, oh, I, this student you know, didn't really have a reason why. He's like, I, I like English. So I majored in English. And so I was waiting for the father to say, oh, that's so dumb, right? You're just studying English. You have no clear career plans. Right. But he would say, and he said, yeah, that's not something I would do. That's something I want, I want my own kid to do. I want them to pick a major, have a clear job outcome. But I can appreciate that if you follow your passion in this way, it could lead you to be a creative thinker that other kids may not be. Yeah. So even the parents who, you know, you would think would be the most single-minded and short-minded. They're reflective. They understand that things aren't always the way they did things, even if the way they do things is how they're raising their own kids, because that's what makes sense to them. That's what's, that's what's most comfortable to them. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm so appreciative of my own father, who, who actually was very clear in saying he valued education for its own sake. Imagine right. that. So that's something else. I mean, yeah. imagine that. I couldn't do well in STEM. I'm not good at that stuff. But I'm pretty decent at history and at writing and critical thinking. What a concept, yeah, exactly. critical thinking. You know, we need more of that. Not, not just uh, STEM kids these days. It's, it, again, it's not one size fits all. Well, you write that youth stress is a growing pandemic, creating significant mental health concerns. Talk about that if you would just a little bit. So the concern here, this is articulated by a lot of the um, teachers, the um, health experts that I spoke to, they really see a growing pandemic of stress. And I don't, the word pandemic now has a lot of meaning. To yeah. it. Um, so that's probably not, not the most appropriate use of words in this current moment, but a growing concern sure. uh, throughout schools, no matter of all kinds of um, parts of our country, where stress, stress and anxiety are the number one concern they have for students. And that's leading to a lot of you know, troublesome behaviors. And the stress and anxiety is not just from you know peer relationships or from social media and texting that we all kind of imagine, uh, but it's really a lot of it's coming from around school, around academics. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd be getting am I getting a good enough grade? 
and like you're doing well enough on this test, this standardized test or your or curriculum test. And we're and parents and experts are seeing this in middle school and even elementary school, things that were unheard of like 10 years ago. And it's a sign that education is going more and more competitive at a younger and younger age. And this is a real problem. So parents who, I spoke with parents who said, I you know, would say, quote, I'm the most relaxed parent you'll ever meet. I don't care if my child grows up to be a dog walker. Like, I do not care. But I still have my daughter and a third grade daughter in an after school math class. Because if I don't, right, she may lose out on opportunities down the road because, you know, some other kid may beat her out for an opportunity. This is what the situation is. Parents who themselves are very, you know, committed to the public system, to the well being, the emotional well being of their kids, have them in these private opportunity or private centers as a way of, in their minds, quote, creating opportunity. And if you don't do it, what challenges are you inadvertently creating for a child down the road? This is, and, and, but even if they have a laid-back attitude themselves, the children experience more work, more assignments, more opportunities to be quote-unquote right or quote-unquote wrong, mm. and stress and anxiety are growing and growing. And, you know, children are, are scheduled in all these activities, and that's adding to the stress. Uh, but the academic side of this is a key growing component, even, again, among younger and younger students. And, 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 you know, to your earlier point about learning for the sake of learning and critical thinking, the health experts I spoke to said, you know, you know one, one said, you know, what breaks my heart is that children don't care about learning as much anymore. They just want to just do well on the <sighs> test, yes. right? And if learning becomes a chore, yes. right, if school becomes a chore, then, we really, then we're really in bad shape. I mean, what are chores, right? Chores are things you just have to get done uh, in order to just keep things moving. But no one enjoys, or very people enjoy chores, right? right? Uh, even when you like, if you like it, we call it, it became a chore. And <laughs> if learning becomes a chore, yeah. then you're not interested in the actual process. You just want to get it done. And I'm not saying the parents who do hyper-education are creating this, but, this is, but we're all heading down that road. And the parents I'm talking about are, they are, you know, in that vein, sadly. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left. I can't imagine being a kid today in this quarantine. you have any advice or suggestions <laughs> for parents? Well, I have two <laughs> uh, kids myself right now, and I understand how challenging it is and how hard it is to keep their spirits up while balancing our own needs. Mm-hmm. I think right now the key thing is to, and I, and I try to practice this, is listen to the children. Don't feel like we have to be supplementing or whether it be academics or, you know, don't feel like we have to make this a fun time to explore new passions and discover something new for yourself and, you know, uh, limit the screen time so we can learn how to cook something, you know, whatever else, or just do this fun craft. Listen to the kids, right? Are they uh, interested in something? Let's encourage that. If they need time to just decompress, let's let's, uh, allow for that. If they're missing out on the social dimensions of life more than ever, Mm. let's try to facilitate that. You know, one thing that we did recently is take my son to uh, a parking lot, this, you know, a big box parking lot, yeah. and other kids met there. Uh, he used to be on the drive, so we I drove him there, and 
he sat on top of our car, and other kids sat on top of their parents' cars. Nice. And, you know, more than six feet apart. Yeah. And they just talked for like over an hour. And it was this splendid. Wow. Right? What a great idea. And so there are, there are ways to listen. It really starts with, and this is something I really learned a lot, not just as a parent, but by researching for the book. The kids really need to be in the driver's seat. And we have to listen and be attentive to them about how much they can, how, how much is too much. What, where, where should we should be uh, uh, listening to them as opposed to kind of guiding them? And, but also, like, I want you to be encouraging them in ways that they may not take the risk themselves, right? And that's a constant balancing we do as parents. But in this, and it's not just in a COVID moment, but in this broader moment we're in right now, it's all the more important. Being in the driver's seat, isn't that what being a citizen is all about? What democracy is there for? What a great idea. Thank, very interesting. <laughs> the book is Hyper Education, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. The author, Pawan uh, Poven uh, uh, Dingra, and it's New York University Press. Thank you so much, and I hope we can uh, all learn from this. Very, very interesting subject. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay. to 